Lisa Blair is the first woman to sail solo around Antarctica. That world record took her over 100 days. She was isolated in some of the world's most unforgiving and ferocious weather. This accomplishment alone is astounding, but what she faced to get there is truly unbelievable. I was lying in bed and just out of nowhere, I just heard the loudest just bang and the whole boat started shuddering and it sounded like a gunshot had gone off and I knew something had broken, but I didn't know what. And I just froze completely and I just remember like that whole montage of just seeing your family, seeing myself getting sucked down into the inky depths and, and dying and just like vividly, like now it wasn't this concept of like sometime tonight I might lose the boat and, and maybe then I might die of hypothermia or something else. I honestly didn't know whether I was going to survive. We begin this week's episode before Lisa set sail for Antarctica. We begin where she started, on a charter boat in the Whitsundays. I discovered sailing when I was 22 um, to 25, somewhere in there, and I randomly got a job in the Whitsunday Islands as the cook and the cleaner on a charter boat. And I had been, you know, on boats and things like that when I was younger, but I hadn't, like, taken to the sport of sailing. I was more the, the person they'd send below to go and grab snacks or a drink for whoever's skippering, or I would um, be more interested in just sort of laying on deck and sunbaking because I was a teenager. When I had this experience as I was older and the deckhand and the skipper on board were really patient and really took time to sort of explain things to me. And I started to see sailing as more than just physical sport. It was like a mental sport and a problem solving. And one thing I, I love about sailing is the fact that you have to physically harness the wind to get from point A to point B. And as things break, as things hurdles come up or challenges along the way, you, you're the only people on the boat. So you have to sort of puzzle those out and figure them out. So it means you end up being a bit of a jack of all trades and you become the plumber and the, the baker and the, you know, the sail maker and the rigger and the, all of it together. I sailed to Hawaii with some mates and when I came back from that trip, I just remember thinking I wanted to do more. I didn't know what, I just wanted to sail more. I wanted to chase opportunities on the water and my degree was as an art teacher for high school. So I sort of figured that I could loop back to that later on quite easily and take on this adventure and do a couple of years of sailing and see just sort of where that would take me. That took me to signing up to the Clipper Around the World Yacht Race, which is a amateur yacht race and you pay a birth fee and you sign up and you sail around the world. 
And I remember having the moment in the car, mum was driving me somewhere, I can't remember where, but we're in the car together. And I remember telling her about this random idea that I found this yacht race I want to do and it's around the world and you have to pay $80,000 to do it. And I was going to sign up and I just thought it was the best thing ever. And I remember her and the rest of my family all thinking I was slightly crazy. And why would I want to do something like that? And it's all sort of stemmed from there. There's a huge difference between the romantic ideal of doing something like that, though, and the physical incarnation of getting there. Because there's plenty of people, I think, who have these wild dreams when they're young, these amazing concepts of what they would like to do. But when they're faced with the reality of earning $80,000 to pay the birthing fee, finding the skills necessary to be a useful hand on a boat when you've got limited to no sailing experience, and then integrating with a group of people on a journey that's going to take you a number of months at a minimum to get around through a whole range of circumstances, that's, that's the next step. That's the hard part. And that's the part where I think a lot of people really fall down. But you pushed through that. You were able to do all of those things. And so I'm interested in what characteristics or personality traits or lessons you had on board or, or acquired that allowed you to take that romanticism and actually make it into something pragmatic uh, for your life. One of the biggest challenges with any record, with any challenge, with any new adventure, whether it's business life or career or a crazy adventure like what I do, one of the biggest hurdles I think most people and specifically I faced was just getting started. Do you have all that insecurity? You're like, how do I figure something like this out? I'd never raised sponsorship before in my life. I'd never done a fundraising drive. I, I didn't know the first thing about it. I vividly remember going to the local library and borrowing a book on sports marketing and reading that you've got to write a proposal and send it to these companies and ask for money and, and what can you offer them? And, and that was the first sort of time that I started realizing that there's these tricks and these opportunities and there's ways to kind of make all this possible. Hands down, getting the money, the fundraising, the the trying to push through all those moments of potential failure, that is a hundred times harder than the actual trip itself. That's 100% down to self-belief and self-determination. And if you don't believe that you can get to that start line or get to that finish line, then you're never going to get there because you will, as soon as you get that really big hurdle or that person that slams the door in your face and says, no, we're not going to be able to help you you'll take that as your exit strategy and go, oh, well, I tried and like dust your hands off and think you've done well enough and, and um, sort of swallow your pride and carry on. Whereas I think if you, you can really see yourself out there doing it, living it, breathing it, and I use visualization a lot personally, and you know in your heart that you can succeed in a project like that, then it's a matter of like I treat it like a numbers game. It's a matter of finding enough people to ask for help and building enough network and struggling hard enough to to push through all those moments of potential failure and honestly if I got a dollar for every moment that I thought about quitting on any of this journey I probably wouldn't need to find sponsors anymore we're never invincible and we're never without our points of failure and for me it was definitely a mental attitude that I had to rely on to get me through The Clipper race was probably 
it, it still would be considered one of the most rewarding adventures I've ever gone on as far as the self-growth moment, but also one of the absolute toughest challenges I've ever undertaken. And one of the biggest parts of that is dealing with 18 people on a boat that don't know each other shoved out to sea in a big storm and you're all exhausted and you're all tired and you all hate life right in that moment. You got to figure out a way to work together and get through it. And it is like, I could see it being a really amazing social study if someone actually like focused on how the crew dynamics go in those boats. Um, But for me, like I didn't even know I was able to go until two weeks before the race start still hadn't got the last of the money and I'm watching everyone else connect and bond and know who their team is and know what boat they're racing on and I'm still standing there and I know roughly what boat I might get on if I can make it happen but I I still couldn't like figure out a way and I ended up getting an article written in the Sunshine Coast Daily posted on their website and this random guy that happened to have holidayed on the Sunshine Coast like 10 years earlier occasionally reads the Sunshine Coast Daily and he was this American citizen working in China, read that article and donated the money and and I was able to go. And then when I knew it was happening, it was just like all systems go. I was just so thankful for all the support because it was so much community support and family support that got me to the start line that for me it was a real determination not to lose a learning opportunity in that adventure and not to like I I always just wanted to utilize the clipper race as a platform for me to become a really great sailor. My whole focus was on putting my hand up first for everything. So I was the first up the mast in all conditions, even at two in the morning in a storm. And I was the first on the bow for a sail change. I was the first in the galley. I was the first on the helm. Like I just was so determined to to use that opportunity that I was given to really learn. So that first couple of weeks was interesting because we're all in the same like sort of category, if that makes sense. We're all figuring it out together. So we really like it's a it's amazing team building opportunity because you really have that opportunity to rely on your other teammates ask questions and and sort of build that learning base of knowledge together i was really fortunate to have a skipper called richard hewson who's an australian sailor and he uh he has a big racing background and he was very very good at you know when i said to him i want to learn absolutely everything he didn't shy away from that and he would push me to really figure out a lot of different stuff. I became the rigger, I became, um, you know, the primary helmsman, the watch leader for second half of the trip. And I, and he really like taught me everything he knew. Um, so what we would do is when we'd have these new people come in as we would run like lessons at sea, we'd do sailing lessons at sea. So the first sort of week of the trip, we'd run workshops on our watches with the new crew and try and get everyone up to the same kind of par um, as you go along. But it's definitely a unique experience. It's got the most divorces and the most new relationships and babies made out of any yacht racing (laughs) I think I've ever figured out. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it was just this incredible opportunity and I didn't want to waste a second of it.
coming off the back of winning an around the world yacht race with the Clipper race, being one of the primary core team members on that boat, I was just thirsty for more adventures. I wanted to keep pursuing sailing and seeing where it could take me. But I was also quite obvious that I would get a lot less opportunities if I was trying to get on crewed boats at a professional level. So I made a bit more of an internal decision that instead of racing and trying to get on these all guy crewed boats, I would do it my own way. And I'd, I'd try this solo sailing because then I didn't have to worry about that, that gender argument and I could just give it a go and be another sailor on a boat doing an incredible adventure. You made the point that when you were in a solo environment, you didn't have to worry about any of the cultural issues that came with gender or came with teamed crews and that that gave you a great deal of freedom. To me, one, it's extremely disappointing that that was a consideration for you at the time because it seems to me someone who was such a critical part of a winning crew on such an immense race would be fighting off offers for competitions and crews and and opportunities within that world. But of course, the realism of what you're saying is something that we're grappling with in a lot of different areas. And, and I'm glad to hear that there's progress being made in sailing. There's certainly a lot of progress that needs to be made in many other areas, including medicine. But can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be out on the water by yourself, completely in control of your own destiny, but also completely reliant on just yourself to, to get over any problems that might come through? What, what, what is that experience like? So stay one on the Solo Trans Tasman Yacht Race. We just crossed the start line. I'm about mid-fleet. A few boats up around there. Couple over there. And then quite a few behind me. I set off for the Trans Tasman Yacht Race. I, I had a year to get the project together and I'd managed to secure a boat literally like three weeks before I had to sail to New Zealand for the start of the trip. And I had like 10 days refitting the boat and then I, I set off. And so I left from Sydney and I sailed all the way to New Zealand and I'd never sailed solo before in my life. Most people spend 10 years like getting the confidence and the abilities to like go and sail solo. And here I was, I was just like, no, nah, I'll figure it out. It's just ocean. It's like, I can go, the boat's fine, let's go. Okay, so it's 7am on um, our second day at sea. So for much of the night I could see a couple of boats, but in the morning now I can't see anyone. We've sort of spread out quite a bit. I knew in my mind I could sail solo. I knew I had the practical skills to be able to do it. And I knew I had the mental fortitude to be able to do it and the desire to want to do it. But I really had no idea what that journey was going to be like because I'd never done it before. I remember being so busy that I'd never even hoisted the sails on this boat before I left. The first time I even got the sails out was as I was leaving because there was just so much maintenance and stuff that had to be done to the boat before I left. And so I left and the jib was like half torn from UV damage. So I had to like get the tape out and tape it back up. And like there was just like so much going wrong at the beginning that I should have red flagged. And the autopilot uh, decided that as soon as the wind got over like 25 knots, it would just take the boat and like take and us through a full 360 well, so turn. The boat, the auto helm wasn't handling it very well, so there's lots of time on deck. Um, very, very, very little opportunity to get any cat naps in, so now I'm really, really tired. And so if I didn't sleep close enough to the autopilot, it would just turn herself off and just spin the boat around in circles. And um, there was just all sorts of kind of complications and problems. And I ended up curling up miserable and sleeping out in the rain with my hood over my head 
with a little oven timer that, you know, one of those little mechanical oven timers right by the helm. So every 20 minutes I had to wake up and scan the horizon for any shipping traffic. Hi, so it's um, 10 a.m. on our third morning at sea and um, <coughs> I just got the position reports in. Looks like I'm about mid-fleet, which is awesome. I'm not doing as bad as I thought I was. Um, so yesterday through the light winds, the auto helm wasn't handling it very well. So I hand steered for about eight hours. And um, by the time last night hit and the winds filled in for the auto helm to be able to take over, I was just shattered. I, um, I find I'm actually really, really exhausted and feeling nauseous and um, getting shaky just because I'm so tired. and completely miserable the less sleep I got the more out of whack my emotions would get and I started having like two-year-old toddler tantrums and like I would be putting a reef in or doing something with the sails and it would just get jammed a little bit and it would just be like the straw that broke the camel's back and I would just lose it to be pushed to that level of exhaustion where I just physically couldn't control my anger or my reactions or my frustrations was a really interesting process I was pushed to my limits time and time again on that 12-day voyage over to New Zealand. But at no single point in time did I ever once think I couldn't do this. less pressure on it. That way um, it should survive the trip. Um, but the furler won't furl. So I managed to get it a quarter of the way furled. And in 40 knots of wind, that's going to be way too much sail up. But the 25 knots that I've got right now it's a bit hard to try and drop it on the deck because it'll probably just go in the water. I never once thought this is it, I'm turning around, I'm going back I've had enough, this isn't what I want to do Lightning just about to hit me can't say I'm not scared I'm in an aluminium boat in the middle of the ocean and I'm the tallest thing around so I hope like hell it doesn't strike me because I don't know what will happen Woo! here's what it lasts um, it's the morning of the third When I got to New Zealand after sailing across an ocean, like the Tasman Sea is well known for being quite dangerous, and I survived it and got across with absolutely everything possible that could go wrong going wrong, arrived like plotting on the paper chart because my GPS had been ripped off the back of the boat and like all sorts of problems. I just had this incredible sense of achievement and confidence and resilience that I was able to build up by going through that journey and having that points of failure and those hurdles I had to get across. The unique thing about sailing compared to other endurance sports is you can't just 
get a car to come pick you up when you've stopped running because you just don't want to finish this ultra marathon or something like you're it you're on this boat you've got to figure it out like there is no one else there to help you and I think that's a really there's something that I love about sailing because it makes me a better person it makes me a stronger person and it definitely builds my resilience up because I I'm constantly faced with these decisions that I have to make and overcome as I'm sailing. Tell me about the process of getting your first boat, financing it and, and getting it all, all together. Because I imagine that in itself, getting a craft that's capable of doing what you want it to do, which is really pushing it to an extreme, is not the sort of thing you can just buy off the shelf or find easily necessarily. Um, but there's some work involved in, in doing that. Can you tell us the story about how that came to be? Ensuring that I get the right boat for the project is really like a risk assessment process. I have to weigh up the pros and cons of all the different types of material. I have to weigh up all the possible hurdles and challenges that I might face in something like that. So when we talk about, you know, me sailing solo around Antarctica, some of the biggest risks and challenges were freezing temperatures, um, iceberg risk, seas that were 10 metres plus, um, storms the size of a hurricane once a week, almost a guarantee that the boat would be fully rolled over or it would be flipped upside down at least once during that voyage. And just the extreme pressures and forces getting applied to that boat on a consistent day-by-day -day basis. I searched for about six months. I was actually, I'd been campaigning for Antarctica for a little over a year and I wasn't getting anywhere. I wasn't getting any sponsorship. I wasn't getting any ideas i was trying to build a boat at that point and design something custom for the for the project and i remember having a chat to my mum and i was saying you know maybe it's been too long since i did my last project maybe i'll shelve this idea of sailing solo around antarctica and i'll circle back to it in a year or two and i'll try and enter my hat in the ring to skip a clipper race around the world so i was sort of almost looking at quitting at that point mum went away and sat on it overnight and the next day she calls me up and she's like I've been thinking and she was like I'm thinking that I'm potentially might have the the room to refinance and you can get yourself a boat and my first reaction was absolutely no way because I didn't want to have my mum compromising her financial stability to allow me to go and do this harebrained project I'm going to do it I'm going to do it right. I'm going to get corporate sponsorship. I'm going to make sure the boat's good and I'm going to go and do it. And she just sort of kept reiterating to me that she was looking at it like a loan and that it would kickstart my career in sailing. It would allow me to go and do so many other amazing things. And she was investing in my future and I'd make payments on it and, and it would all work out. By this point, we'd really identified but that there was this chicken and the egg factor going on where I couldn't get sponsorship if I didn't have a boat because sponsors weren't going to put in until they had this guarantee that the project could go ahead. And then I couldn't get the boat because I had no sponsorship. It didn't matter how many doors I knocked on, that barrier was still there. So after a couple of weeks of discussions back and forth, mum finally convinced me that she was okay with it and we set a budget for what we were looking at. Um, and I started boat shopping. I knew whatever boat I got, I would need to replace everything on it. So I was effectively looking to buy a really good hull, 
a really good keel and rudder structure and a good mast and everything else was going to be new and replaced on it. It took us a couple months and then randomly in this little tiny um, boat brokerage in Newcastle of all places that I don't know, even know how I came across it, I found this yacht called Funnel Web. It was this 50 foot yacht, she's sleek, she was sexy, but also she had seven watertight compartments. It was the right shape that I was looking for. I'd already gone through the architectural, the naval architectural process with the naval architect, and we designed a 50 foot boat for me to build. And it was almost identical shape where it was very narrow, very shallow draw, um, uh, hull size and very long. So I had a nice long waterline. And by getting a second hand boat, I had this guarantee that the project could go ahead or this almost guarantee. So it would, it would allow me to then get that sponsorship that I needed. And we worked out that it was only a couple months until the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. So we're like, all right, well, let's go and look at this boat and I can then enter it in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. And we can use that as a platform to try and entice sponsors and, and so yeah. on and so forth. We put a thousand dollar deposit on it that night. And then about a week later, mum flew down and we drove up and we went to take a look at the boat. And I met the owner of the boat and he spent a good sort of 45 minutes of that meeting, literally telling me, you, you realize this is a big boat. It's very powerful. Like this might be too much for you to handle. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, but I've sailed a 68 foot yacht in the Southern Ocean under Spinnaker. And I know yes. what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, finally convinced him that I was a serious potential buyer and uh, took a tour of the boat. And as soon as I started looking into the guts of the boat and I saw the strength in the hull materials and how she was constructed and built, I knew straight away that it was a boat that I knew would be able to do the project. Funnily enough, someone else from the Clipper race had actually raced that boat in the uh, Melbourne to Osaka yacht race. So I was sort of also slightly familiar with the boat. I'd seen some mm. social media so I, and I'd always had a bit of boat envy when I watched him <laughs> racing on it. So I was like, well, now I can buy it. So we went to, to buy the boat and unfortunately it just ended up being the world's worst timing ever. And um, the due to the uh, Royal Commission into home loans and lending, they changed the laws a week earlier around serviceability and lending. And so we had the, the, the financial ability to do it, but mum didn't have enough serviceability to do it. So we were, we were actually not eligible for the loan. So we spent about three months extending the deposit on the boat and trying to just like secure it however we could. We tried everything like joining our finances, trying to find a guarantor, trying to go to different banks, like just trying to figure out a way to make it happen. And we just couldn't get it across the line. So I ended up getting this article written for a sailing magazine uh, online and it was uh, a company that had already covered me quite a bit through the Clipper race. So he, the owner was quite familiar with my story and, and what I was doing. So he wrote this article about me looking for a private investor. And it turned out that there was this guy who I delivered a boat from um, Western Australia to New Zealand. And he came on board as a crew member a couple of years earlier. And I'd been talking about this project at that point. And he knew that I'd been like working towards it for years. And so he basically said, give me more information. So we sent him more information. He had a chat to his wife and um, this amazing guy, Colin Wilson, ended up privately financing the loan uh, for the boat that I'm still paying. Sorry, Colin. 
and all of a sudden I had a boat. So I officially became the owner the same day the entries to the Sydney to Hobart yacht race shut uh, and the end of October. And then, so I had November and December to get the boat ready for the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. And I'd never skipped a boat before with crew and I had to race with eight people on the boat. So I had to find seven people to race with. And then the boat had been unfortunately sitting for a year. So that had lots of maintenance that had to be done to it just to be able to do a small trip like the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. And then after that race, I set about the grand plan of trying to find the money to actually refit the boat for the project, which was a whole nother hurdle, like getting the boat was step one in a long list of steps. I know when I did cast off the lines that day in Albany, which was the 20th of January, 2017, I was so focused on what I was doing and my family weren't even there because I'd had to extend my departure a week and they all had to go back to work. And so I was on this dock with just, you know, the community of Albany around me and the few people that have become quite close friends to me in Western Australia through the preparation process. And I cast the last line off and I was getting towed off the dock because there was a really strong wind pinning me on. And all of a sudden, like all these people that I didn't even realize were standing there just started shouting and screaming. And the whole car park was filled with hundreds of people <laughs> and they were tooting their horns and there were like signs and everything. And I had no idea they were even there because I hadn't looked up and taken in the view because I was so just like determined to get to that yeah. start line. And I think at that moment, it really hit home, like the enormity of the challenge that I was about to undertake. I remember basically breaking down into a panic attack and like starting to hyperventilate and trying my hardest not to cry my eyes out in front of this crowd of like a couple of hundred people on the dock that are there to see me off. And I was shaking like a leaf and I'm cringing as I'm trying to smile at these people. And, and I remember just sort of thinking to myself, holy, I'm like about to go and live like my absolute worst case scenarios. And I now have to go and like, fight for my life in these situations and, and find a way through them. And I'd spent so long thinking about, you know, all these bad situations that can happen out there so I could plan for them and prepare for them. And, um, and I was about to go and live and breathe them. But at that moment in time, like sponsors and, and Shore Team, none of those people were um, even a considering factor to me. But I do remember consciously making a personal decision to be like, if it feels wrong, don't do it. And I've seen other projects of other sailors allow that pressure to get to them to the point where they make a poor decision and their project comes unstuck. Halfway through the voyage at times where I was having really, really bad days, uh, I remember knowing that I, it wasn't just me on the boat anymore. It was this enormous community of people that were following me. It was the sponsors. It was my family. It was my friends that I hadn't had time to talk to that often before I left. And it was all these people behind me. And that, you know, when I was going through crap and having a really bad day at sea, that was what actually like gave me the motivation to keep going because I wasn't just sailing for me anymore. I was sailing for this greater cause and this greater message of climate action now and this greater community of people that that stood up and believed in this five foot two girl from, a, you know, the Queensland to go and do something that no one's ever done before. And, and they believed in me enough to do it. So why can't I believe in myself?
meet with sponsors or potential sponsors, I was very frank and upfront with them about my goals. So the original record that I was trying to break was set by this Russian sailor in 2008 called Fedor Konyakov. And he sailed solo, nonstop and unassisted around Antarctica, Albany to Albany um, in 102 days. I had had a conversation with my family before I left about what happened if I died. And I had had that conversation more so that they knew I was okay with that, even though I wasn't really okay with it, if that makes mm. sense. It was a potential ending to the story, but I was going to go and have a grand adventure. I could have that same potential ending in a car accident next week, or I could have a, a stroke or any number of things go wrong in my life. And I could never have that adventure. And I could sit on the couch and do my nine to five and, and like live a quarter of the life that I want to lead. Or I could take that risk and I could have this amazing opportunity and this incredible adventure. But I also knew before leaving that on paper with the preparation, the planning, the, the way I set up the boat, the way I had in my mind to deal with emergency situations, the visualization, I knew the trip was able to succeed with all of that. There's still this element of luck and this unknown factor where stuff can still go wrong, even with all the perfect planning in the world, which I learned the hard way. I knew the trip was capable of being a success through that preparation. I never skimped or, or like cut corners in that. And that gave me that confidence to go and do the trip. like to give people some backstory um leading into this so like me and storms i love them it's this crazy i sit on the middle of this boat and i'm in 80 knot winds and 10 to 12 meter waves and it's blowing so hard you can't face the wind and get a breath of air because there's so much moisture kicked up in the and it's just roaring and the noise and the boat's getting tossed around and and you think you should be terrified but once I know the boat is handling the conditions okay then I sit back and I just marvel at it I'm getting to experience something that almost no one in the world gets to witness and I'm witnessing it on this flimsy fiberglass boat in the middle of the ocean all on my own and I'm in the eye of these incredible storms and it's just this it, it's a it's a real um what's the word it's like this real romantic moment where you can really connect with just the force of mother nature and you're seeing the extreme um, force of it and you're understanding how really small and insignificant you are but at the same time, you're surviving and thriving in that environment and you're able to succeed through that. And I think that that's so, it's just this incredible moment in time that you get to experience. So I had gone through storms. I'd gone through bad storms and I'd been perfectly happy. Like there was always question marks whether the, how bad was the storm going to get. But in general, it was all kind of a okay. And then I 
went through this storm. two days into my record, I'd sailed um, from Australia below Hobart, below New Zealand, around Cape Horn, and I was passing the bottom of uh, South Africa. And I was a thousand nautical miles directly south of South Africa at 48, 30 degrees south. So in the middle of the Southern Ocean, the sea temperature was about three degrees. The air temperature was about six degrees with a wind chill factor of God knows what. Um, cold, very, very cold. I was in bed having a nana nap. I do these like 20 minute naps and I've gotten up and checked on everything 20 minutes before and it all looked fine. And then I was lying in bed and just out of nowhere, I just heard the loudest just bang. And the whole boat started shuddering and it sounded like a gunshot had gone off and I knew something had broken, but I didn't know what. screeching metal on metal, that grinding and twisting. And, um, you know, that was just roaring around me and it's amplified a thousand times inside the boat. The whole boat was just jarring and shaking and shuddering. And, and then it was just consistent screeching and noise. Like there was no silence afterwards. I'm in a storm and I now have a broken mast. still had sails up so the mast had fallen like to the right hand side of the boat and now um, it had effectively anchored me to the water and acted like a drogue in the water so it turned the whole boat around 180 degrees and now these six to eight meter waves that were breaking were coming across and they would hit the bottom of the mast that was sort of floating on the surface of the water caught and trapped in all the rigging and, and the sails and they would shove it up on the deck of the boat about two meters and then the back of the wave would try and rip it off and it's creating this really horrible like seesaw grinding motion and it just was not a good situation to be in and I through my preparation had been very conscious of the fact that most of the places that I was sailing in fact almost I would have to say about 90% of my voyage I was going to be well outside rescue range and I would be at least three days from help if a real emergency occurred so that was already a known factor to me when the situation occurred I also knew that the storm was getting worse and if I abandoned to a life raft I almost guarantee I wouldn't survive. 
only way I knew I could survive the night was to keep the boat floating, no matter the cost. So that's what I did. The only way to keep the boat floating was to cut away the rigging in the middle of the storm. So unfortunately, my bolt cutters didn't work. It was too wet for my angle grinder. And I ended up having to disconnect the rigging, but it was a very slow process and it took hours. So it was a four hour ordeal of me running around the deck of the boat and crawling and trying to hold on in the dark. Always happens at nighttime as these waves, which now, cause the boat was anchored effectively, Instead of them passing under the boat, they were slamming into the side of the hull and breaking right across the boat. So I would end up getting up to my chest in like white water and it would try and rip you off the boat. You've got tools that you're trying to hold on to and you're trying to hold on to the boat. The whole boat's just like pitching and rolling like crazy and, um, and it's freezing cold. And I remember just circling back to that moment of morality, like, about two hours into the ordeal, I had disconnected some of the backstay and the inner forestay, and I was on my hands and knees up near the bow of the boat. And the way the rigging had kind of fallen, the furler, which is a piece of sailing gear in the front there, had blocked the pins that I needed to get to. And the whole starboard side railing had already been torn off and buckled with all the rigging fallen on it. And the front railing had been kind of twisted and buckled to the side and was only held on by, you know, four little bolts that were twisted and kind of half pulled out of the deck. And I was looking at this and I had two options. One was to kind of wedge my arm underneath the furler and, and with my hammer on the other side and knock it out that way. But the minute I disconnected it, it would be whipping around the deck of the boat like a weapon. And I had an almost certain guarantee I'd break an arm or I'd crack a rib or some mm. other injury because of the force that was getting applied to all of this stuff. And if that happened, then I wouldn't be able to save the boat because I'd be too injured. And the only other option was to physically climb over the safety railing at the bow of the boat. And on racing yachts, we have this um, sort of pole that sticks out the front called a bowsprit or a prodder. And um, the bowsprit is about two meters long and it's this black carbon fiber pole that sticks out the front. You've got nothing to hold on to. And my only option was to climb out and sit down on that to disconnect it because I could access it from that side of the boat. And I remember like I was already going into hypothermia. I was losing dexterity in my fingers. I remember sort of like starting to feel quite drowsy and not really thinking clearly and knowing that my time was like very limited. And um, I also knew that I should tell someone. So I'd already issued a pan pan and been in contact with my shore team at the beginning of the emergency. And so I crawled into the boat and I spoke to my shore manager um, and I just gave him an update on where I was at. And I remember at one point saying to him, um, this is what I've got to go and do. And he knew straight away, you know, how incredibly dangerous that was. And I said to him in that phone call, I said, if my PL beam, which is my personal location beacon, which is always attached to my life jacket, if that's activated, it's because I'm in the water. And it was basically like my only way of saying, don't come and get me because you won't be getting a live body. So that was my only kind of form of telling them that I was washed off the boat and I was trapped in the water and, and basically succumbing to exposure. So I hung up the phone and I remember crawling um, towards the front of the boat and I got within like two metres of the bow of the boat and I just 
couldn't make myself go any closer to the bowsprit and I just froze completely and I just remember like that whole montage of just seeing your family seeing myself getting sucked down into the inky depths and and dying and just like vividly like now it wasn't this concept of like sometime tonight I might lose the boat and and maybe then I might die of hypothermia or something else it was like in the next five minutes my life could be over or I could have fought and I survived and I did and I still like was going through all the options and trying to come up with a safer option and and trying to think that there's got to be a better way and I just couldn't think of anything better than that option I honestly didn't know whether I was going to survive I remember just saying it's now or never like I do this now or I jump in that life raft and the boat sinks and I die that way. So I took the risk and I jumped up and I climbed over that rail and I sat down and um, the first wave like hit and tried to tear me off the boat and I held on long enough till the wave passed and and then I started holding on and just trying to hammer out that fitting and um, and, and I survived and I'm here to tell the story, which I'm very grateful for. Lisa, I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like when you succeeded, when you were able to disconnect the mast from the boat and you realised that you'd taken that chance and you were going to survive, or at least you had a much better chance of surviving after that point in time. What was that like? Um, again, I was still mid-emergency. I still knew my time was running out. I was still going into hypothermia. I was still, um, you know, I still had the side stay riggings to, to free up. I still had another hour or more of crawling around on the deck of that boat trying to sight save it um, and by now the mast had carved like it was starting to cut the boat physically in half I had this massive hole on the starboard side of the boat where it'd been sort of soaring back and forth and like cutting through the deck and into the hull so time was like really becoming limited and um, I did call my shore crew back and just like update them that I was back on board the boat and, and still alive um, and I guess like after that shore crew phone call I it was the first time I started to think about the fact that I might survive. The bowsprit moment was a huge moment um, in the sense that I did survive that, but I wasn't out of the woods yet. The boat could still sink and a number of things could go wrong. I, I started to think about, okay, well, if I survive, 
what am I going to do next? And I started thinking about like, well, how can I salvage some of the rigging so I can build a jury rig? And, and I started to think about those next steps in a more logical, rational thought process. Um, so that was good because it meant that I didn't just cut it all free and sink it and then have no way of being able to get myself to port because, you know, I'm still on a boat a thousand nautical miles from land um, with no mast or rigging to sail with. Um, so that was, uh, I guess it was good, but I was still just so focused on getting through that moment. And when the mast did finally tear free of the deck and I had been able to save the boom and I was thought I was trailing it on a rope behind the boat, I went below and I started trying to call everyone to just tell them that I was safe. And all I wanted to do was call mum and like talk to the family basically and say that I'm alive, I'm here. Like part of our procedures through any emergency was that I didn't call my family at all. I call my shore manager and he relays everything to them. So there's none of that personal um, mm. connection coming on so that can cloud your judgment. Finally, I managed to get through to my um, head of media communications and the lady that was volunteering for that. And um, and I, I thought I still had my stuff together. I thought I was still like mentally like there and focused and I was like, okay, and the yep. minute I heard someone answer the phone, I just like broke down into an absolute sobbing mess. I was curled up, freezing cold on the floor of the boat. And I cried for like 10 minutes before I could actually spill the words out to just say that I'm okay and that I yes. survived. Like, And she just said, look, don't worry about anyone at home. I'll relay the message and just get some rest. And we'll talk to you tomorrow after you've had some rest. And, um, and so I hung up the phone and I you know, couldn't stop shivering and I was just a mess. And uh, so I got into some dry clothes and filled up some hot water bottles and curled into my bunk. And I think it was about four or five hours until I started to actually, you know, feel like I wasn't shivering anymore. And I, I was like coming out of the other end of it. Um, and I finally got some sleep. It took me 10 days after building a jury rig and rendezvousing with a container ship that almost sank me um, before finally arriving in South Africa. And I remember arriving on land into a foreign country and there were about 10 people scattered on the dock who had a sign up saying, welcome Lisa from this international sailing group on Facebook called Women Who Sail. And I jumped onto the dock and I just gave the dock a hug and I just... <laughs> smiled at everyone and said, who wants the first hug? And I <laughs> never met these people before in my life. And I went around in a circle and hugged absolutely every one of them. And then I was whipped off to a pub and, and we were off. So I was in Cape Town for two months, um, just scrambling, trying to get everything together. Yes. And I knew at that point when I restarted the record, um, I, I have the option of setting the first women's record with one stop, but it means that that last section of the voyage from South Africa to Australia was going to be in winter in the Southern Ocean. And the general consensus is that you are suicidal if you sail in the Southern Ocean in winter. That's the general consensus. Um, and so I had gone and looked at the historical weather data and I'd spoken to my meteorologist, Bob McDavitt, and I had asked 
you know, his forecasted plan as like the absolute, absolute worst case scenarios? What could he think was going to be the worst storm he could thought I might encounter in winter and the worst temperatures and how high was the ice line going to be? And I looked at all this data and I tried to make a decision on whether I thought it was safe to continue or not. And after a couple of weeks and with the boat repaired, I decided that it was going to be doable. It wasn't going to be great, but it was going to be doable. Um, and so I pushed forward with continuing. And so two months later, I, I announced that I was going to restart the record and that I would sail back to my position of dismasting um, a thousand miles south, get back on the racetrack and then sail the rest of the way back to Australia and finish the trip. And at that point, um, you know, your haters all got involved. And uh, I started to get all these emails and messages from people I'd never met before telling me that it was suicide and I shouldn't go and I'm just a girl and, uh, you know, why would I do it and and all of these things. Um, And I remember emailing most of them back and saying things like, okay, well, I've looked at the historical weather data. It says it's possible. Um, Show me the information that says it's impossible. Like, prove it. Like, Mm. if you think it's impossible, if you think I'm going out here to die, I'm not. I've logically looked at the weather patterns. Show me where it says I can't do it. Um, Mm. And no one really had an answer for that. And so I realized it was more of this perceived risk than actual risk. And it was definitely going to be harder and more dangerous than what I'd already sailed through. But um, given what the boat had handled, I figured we could take it. And, um, And given how well I knew the boat at that point, um so I sucked it up and I left and at that point I had had the mast in the boat for about five days um and I'd sailed with the boat three hours so I tuned the rig basically and I, and I was like I'm going so there would be no testing basically um and I figured the the two or three hundred miles to get south of South Africa um if anything felt wrong and that leg of the voyage I'd just turn around and go back so that was my kind of like deal with myself that if anything didn't quite feel right on this first little bit I just turn around and go back and we can reassess it we can do more testing I can wait until next season I can make a new plan so I left on the back of what was Cape Town's largest winter storm in like 35 years, killed like eight people and destroyed like a whole bunch of the slums and flooded everywhere and did mountain like um, mudslides and all sorts of stuff. Um, So the water was just this messy, choppy, crappy mess of like 25, 30 knots of wind. And I went because I was running out of time before the worst of the winter storms would hit. And I got severely seasick. And then um, after spending a night throwing my guts up, trying to navigate through shipping lanes where at one point there was like 16 ships driving straight for me. And I'm like between throwing up in a bucket and trying to like alter my course so I could sneak around these container ships. I, um, I kept going. And, um, and then about two days later, I started coming down with probably one of the worst head colds I think I've had in about 20 years well, my whole life. And so I just went down hard, like physically, I was just so at my limit. Those voices from all those strangers telling me it was suicide started Mm. to win out because I didn't have that confidence anymore in the boat's ability to get me through. And, um, and I almost got washed overboard by this one wave once and I, I'd been in it for like five days and I was at my wits end. I was just so stressed. The anxiety was getting to me. I 
was every storm that came through, instead of being comfortable moving around the boat, I was tying myself into my bunk um, so I couldn't get tossed across the cabin and injured. Um, and I had to go fix something up at the rigging on the side of the boat on the low side at one point. And this massive wave, like huge, like when I say a 15 meter wave, that's from the back of the wave. So the face of the waves, like way bigger and this huge wave just smashed into the boat and just engulfed the entire boat in white water. And I remember us getting pressed under and my ears popping from the pressure of it. And I was on deck outside completely exposed i was clipped on um but my my legs and my hips and my waist were ripped off the deck and hanging out of the safety lines and i'd managed to hook an elbow around a piece of rigging and latch my other hand onto my other hand uh and hooked my elbow on the rigging and that was all that was keeping me on board as it was just doing its best effort to just rip me off the deck somehow after the wave hit was able to kind of fold back into the safety lines and onto the boat. And I finished what I was doing there really quickly and got back into the cuddy of the boat, which is just like at the entrance to the cabin, there's like this bit of shelter. And I was sitting in there just trying to catch my breath and going and like, I guess, dealing with the fact that I was almost washed overboard again. And another wave hit that was larger than the other one. And it pressed the whole boat down under just this incredible tons of water and the whole cuddy, which is like, I don't know, one and a half meters high was just filled to the roof with water. And I remember just grabbing the handrails were there and, and holding on as I was like tossed and ripped around by the force of this water ripping through. And, and as soon as that wave passed, I didn't waste any mo time. I, I jumped and climbed inside the boat. And I, I just, that was the moment for me that I really broke because I had all that echoing trauma from the first dismasting. And now I'm in worse conditions and and I didn't know if I was going to be able to survive it. And I didn't know if I was strong enough and I'd lost all that confidence in my own abilities. And I, I'd lost all my trust in the boat. And, and so I, I completely broke and I bawled my eyes out. I called mom and I told her I was quitting and I was going to turn around and go back to South Africa and I couldn't do it. I wasn't going to be strong enough. And I, I needed to make the safe decision and quit. Um, and mum's very logical you wonder where I get it uh she said okay well you're in the middle of a storm you can't do anything right now so just ride out the storm after the storm which would be breaking in the middle of the night um let's have another chat and see where you're at um and in the meantime mum and and this is quite an interesting thing actually from a, a mother-daughter relationship or um you know you were asking about the effects of this on my family but in the middle of the night, mum had emailed me an email and I was looking at the next weather forecast the next morning and I saw her email and I read it. And she said in that email, she said, you know, when you dismastered, you were one day ahead of Fedor's Konyakov's record. You were winning. Australia was four weeks away and you were, um, you know, you were doing it. Um, just imagine that this moment, these conditions that you're in now were happening then would and you were a thousand miles from land would that have been enough to make you quit like are you really feeling like the boat is so at risk at this moment that you would quit or is it more that like cape town's like just there and you're struggling mentally and physically and 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 you know is that what's making you quit so she'd put this really eloquently in an email and sent it across and um and i read that email and it made me stop and think and start thinking logically again instead of emotionally and start thinking about the fact that hang on like 
if I was day 72 into my record and I never dismastered, there's no way I would quit in these conditions. I'd figure it out. I'd, I'd do a safe option. I'd find a way. Um, and I realized that I'd let, you know, the naysayers get to me, my own self-doubt get to me, my um, lack of trust in the boat's ability after suffering the dismasting and, the, and I guess that echoing trauma, like get to me and try and make me quit. Um, and it was that email that actually kept me going. And I, I did it. I went back to my position of dismasting. I finally got across those storms, um, crossed my track when I went through my first blizzard at sea. So, you know, that was lots of fun. Uh, and then sailed the rest of the way back to Australia and, and set the record. So, um, yeah, it was uh, quite the journey. <laughs> your mum is such a heroic figure in so much of your story, uh, and I imagine continues to be. But I'm, I'm trying to fathom the the degree of uh, love that is required to be willing to say to your daughter who's in probably the most isolated, dangerous circumstances that a human can put themselves in in this era, that I know that it means so much to you and I have such faith in your abilities that I'm willing to support recommending you continue rather than wanting to bring you back to a place where I know you'll be safe. Because to me, the idea of a parent doing that is, is such an extraordinary act of faith uh, because I can only imagine that all of your desire uh, or your mother's desire would have been to try and bring you into an area of safety to keep you around, to, to keep you there. And that there was that faith in you and that knowledge of what you were trying to achieve that allowed her to be the person that you needed her to be to get you to, to see your dream again or to see that goal again. Um, and, and that to me is amazing. I actually asked her about it because um, a lot of people have asked me about that and they've, they've seen the strength that, that she's given me through her support in these key moments where she's really flipped my mindset and it's happened more than once. There's definitely been more than one. And she said that in that moment, she just couldn't shake the idea that I would just hate myself for quitting and I would be so disappointed in myself. And she just knew that once I'd gotten over the shock of it that it would be a game changer to the point where I would see everything from then on as a failure point not a success point and um and so she knew me well enough to know that that's how I would see things and it's true because you know especially um just the this effort we went to to get to the start was just so incredibly challenging 